0: APU American Public University is proud to present the following podcast
1: Welcome to the School of Arts and Humanities at American Public University System. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today at The Everyday Scholar, we are talking to Dr. Danny Welsh, in which we're going to talk about science for good, science for evil, how good discoveries go evil, and how evil discoveries turn good. Uh, Welcome, Danny. Thanks, Bjorn. It's great to be here. Excellent. And I'm really excited about this conversation. In most of our podcasts, we have arts and humanities people, but it's really good to reach out and to be talking to people in STEM, and especially about discoveries that initially were, I guess you can say, through a long process, obviously, of people's lives, of something that is really good, but then through warfare and what happens with the world and history, sometimes turn into negative as far as impacting people. So the first question I have for you is, can you give us an example of a discovery that started out to benefit society but ended
0: up changing warfare? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's actually a lot of these sorts of things because if you think about the close relationship between warfare or defense and science, it's a lot closer than most people think. And there's a lot of overlap that exists. The most obvious example is the internet, something we use every day. The internet started out as a government project to essentially send large amounts of information between government research centers. And now it's morphed into something that everyone uses all the time and doesn't even think about. But one of the earliest was really something that most people probably don't think about and don't have a whole lot of experience with unless you are part of a certain sector of society, and that's barbed wire. Barbed wire is credited with really inventing the American West. It was Invented actually fairly late in 1867. And before 1867, cattle were free ranging and it was a very difficult thing to separate one herd from the other and to really know where your cattle were because cattle actually have these instinctual migration patterns that they want to follow. And in the absence of anything to prevent it, they're going to migrate. So it was invented in 1867, but it really wasn't modernized until 1874. So it was pretty late and it was essentially used to contain cattle in the American West. Prior to that, farmers and ranchers built fences of wood, stone, hedges, but these were really unreliable and very expensive. And it was essentially built because there was a law that said the railroads actually had to fence their right of way as it passed through private land. So this was also part of the settling of the West because it enabled the westward expansion of the railroads. But it was also used in war. The first time it was used in war was around 1895 when Portuguese troops were defending themselves from African tribes, but most people associate it with World War I, and that was really the first extensive use. And it was part of the trench warfare. If you think about trench warfare in World War I, it wasn't just trenches. It was trenches, and then the trenches were surrounded by barbed wire. And the reason for the barbed wire was to prevent these like massive frontal assaults, these direct charges into the trenches. And it was used on both sides. The European side and the German side were both using barbed wire. So it was essentially placed in front of the trenches to prevent these direct charges. And it's actually credited, at least partially, with the development of some of the more advanced machinery and weaponry that we come to know with World War I, the machine gun was developed primarily because the barbed wire was keeping troops further apart from each other, so there had to be some mechanism to basically shoot further and with you, you would lose accuracy the further you get so you make up for a loss of accuracy with an increase in volume so less accurate but more bullets so barbed wire is credited with that. The same with grenades. Grenades were essentially created to throw over these barbed wire barricades into the trenches. But the biggest one that was really brought about, at least partially by barbed wire, was the tank. The tank was really kind of started by the Europeans and was used when the Allies broke through the German lines at the Third Battle of Picardy, which was April 8, 1918. And that's credited with being the beginning of the end of World War I. And there was a, a 1917 pamphlet from the Army War College that said that the advantages of barbed wire included it's easy and quick to make, It's difficult to destroy, it's difficult to get through, and it offers no obstruction to the view and fire of the defense, which basically means that you have this wall that people can't get through, but you can see through it and you can shoot through it, which is not something that really existed up until this point. Barbed wire is also associated with concentration camps and concentration camps really, you know, we think about concentration camps in association with World War II, but that concept really started in World War I and they were really nothing more than these enclosures surrounded by barbed wire. So barbed wire is probably one of the most important Bits of technology, you don't really think of barbed wire as being a technology because it doesn't plug in, have a rechargeable battery or any microchips. But in 1874, it was technology and it changed both the American West and it also changed modern warfare. And that totally makes sense because to have barbed wire, and again, I'm not
1: a science person, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you need to be able to create, I'm assuming steel and have it bent in a certain pattern quickly, Mm -hmm. very quickly. And for a human to do that would take forever. Right. And so just to do one mile of barbed wire would take so many man hours. But once you automate it and you have machines do it, you can just churn it out, out and out and out. It's going to make sense that starting with the American West with, say, um, keeping cattle enclosed, it totally makes sense. But then moving forward, and I've read a lot of history of World War One. it's extraordinarily fascinating. When we think of World War I, to me, it's overwhelming. But if you're an actual person looking out over a field, and there is just layers of barbed wire... How are you going to get over it? You're not. Yeah. And even if, you know, when there'd be artillery barrages on that barbed wire, the artillery barrages wouldn't really break up the barbed wire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it would still be there even after barrage. So yeah, barbed wire being cheap and not deadly per se, but it stops you. And then you said, with the development of machine guns, then it would kill you because then it would stop the troops then allowing for other things to kill them, unfortunately. And then just even today, when we go to certain places that don't want you to get in, there is barbed wire on top of fences. Yeah. (laughs) So that is a really fascinating, I guess you can say, element that we see potentially every day, but you just don't think about where it came from or how it impacted.
0: Yeah, I'm always kind of fascinated by these things that are really an everyday part of our existence, but have a transformational history that extends beyond what you generally think of them as being. Like you see barbed wire as you might walk through the woods or something around here where I live, there's all this old barbed wire in the woods that are deeply ingrown into trees and things like that in these abandoned fields. And you just look at it and think, oh, there was a farm here one time. But you don't think of the impact that that had on history.
1: Yeah, completely, and even the tank. There's a great YouTube channel called The Great War that went through every week of World War One, from 1914 to 1918. In 2014 to 2018. Absolutely wonderful channel. And they talk about the tank a lot and just that development. But I believe it originally was for agriculture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And then it makes sense moving it from agriculture to warfare makes sense. You just put a bunch of armor on it and then see how it goes. Yeah. And that leads us to the next question. We were talking about discoveries that start out to benefit society and then change warfare. What about discoveries that originated with warfare, but then ended up benefiting society?
0: Yeah, there's a number of those. And they're all fascinating. But there's one that to me, at least, is particularly fascinating, because of the story that is told around it. And that is the story of Fritz Haber, who was a German chemist. And His story is fascinating because he did so much good and so much bad. He's really a dichotomy. He actually won the Nobel Prize for chemistry for one of his inventions, but he's also known as the father of chemical weapons. So about one half to one third of the world is alive today because of his invention, which is chemical fertilizer. But if you think about the number of people that have died through the years because of chemical weapons, I'm sure they don't even out. I think the benefit is greater than the the evil side. It's just a fascinating story. So we'll start with what he did to benefit society, which was the invention of chemical fertilizer. And that might not necessarily sound like something that would benefit society because most people think of chemical fertilizer as something that makes your grass green. But we actually don't have enough nutrients naturally in the soil to grow enough food to feed the world's population. So in the absence of chemical fertilizer, we could not support the number of people that currently exist on the earth. And fertilizer had been used for a long time, but it was kind of what you would think of as one-to-one. So fertilizer is mostly nitrogen. It's nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus are the three big fertilizer elements, but really it's nitrogen that makes the plants grow really fast. So, for the longest time, we'd been using nitrogen fertilizer, but we were essentially moving nitrogen from one long standing pool to another long standing pool. So, things that we were using were like wood ash or bat guano or bird guano or compost, things like that. But we never really had a concentration of nutrients that we could draw from in a relatively unlimited way to produce a lot of chemical fertilizer. And in 1909, there were two German chemists, Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch, who figured out how to do this. They created this first industrial chemical fertilizer process that was efficient. It still took a tremendous amount of energy to do this, but they were able to actually extract nitrogen from the atmosphere where it's unavailable to plants. Our atmosphere is about 80% nitrogen, but plants can't use that. So they were able to create this chemical process to extract nitrogen from the atmosphere and turn it into a nitrogen compound called ammonia that plants actually love. And that process is exactly what is still used today to create the fertilizer that you can go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy. And they won the Nobel Prize for it. The Nobel Prize in chemistry was awarded to uh, Fritz Haber in 1918 and to Carl Bosch in 1931. So they essentially take atmospheric nitrogen and they break it up, which is really hard to do because atmospheric nitrogen is N2. It's, It's two atoms of nitrogen held together. And that's a really, really strong molecule. It's got these really strong triple bonds. So in order to break it up, it takes a lot of pressure and it takes a lot of heat. And it takes a catalyst. So essentially you take nitrogen from the atmosphere and hydrogen from the atmosphere and you put it together in this big container that kind of looks like a bomb and you increase the pressure to about 3000 PSI or 15 to 25 megapascals. And you make it really hot between 400 and 500 degrees C which is about 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you pass this mixture of nitrogen and hydrogen over these beds of this finely ground iron powder catalyst and you get about a 97% conversion efficiency to chemical fertilizer, to ammonia, which was great because now we can keep the world's population alive and uh, we didn't have a way to do that before. But then World War I breaks out and Germany lost access to its supply of saltpeter, which is sodium nitrate. It's a chemical compound that is used to make gunpowder, to make explosives. Typically, sodium nitrate was mined as saltpeter in Chile. That was the biggest International source of this. And that's where everybody got it. But the companies that owned that were British companies. So they cut off access to that resource to Germany. So they really ran into a problem where they didn't have the raw materials they needed to make the munitions to fight the war. So they turned to their chemists. And this process was used to actually create the munitions they needed to go into the German war effort. So mm-hmm. this is an example where Fritz Haber, who was a German patriot, first and foremost. He was born a Jew, which is kind of ironic given the next things that happened in his history, but he really affiliated much more as a German patriot and kind of uh, gave up his Jewish heritage there.
1: Yeah. And World War One was completely different than what occurred
0: True. in the
1: 30s and the 40s in Germany, of
0: course. So when World War One broke out, he was excited. He was a patriot. He really felt strongly about the German cause. And it also turns out that he wasn't just a chemist who could excel in producing chemical fertilizer, but he was a jack of all trades chemist. And he, together with 92 other German intellectuals, signed this thing called the Manifesto of 93, which was a collection of these German intellectuals from across the the country, musicians and artists and scientists that proclaimed their unequivocal support for the German military actions in World War I. And he was promoted to the rank of captain in the German army, and made the head of the chemistry section in the Ministry of War. And one of the most insidious things that he did, and this goes against the rules of war at the time then and today, but he developed chlorine gas. Not him personally, but he was on the teams that developed chlorine gas. And this is really fascinating because not only did he develop it, but he was there at the Battle of Ypres in April of 1915, when it was first released. And there were like 67,000 casualties in this first release of chlorine gas. And he also developed the gas masks to prevent the German troops from being impacted by the chlorine gas. So he was a jack-of-all-trades chemist, and he used his skills to both benefit society, but also to create this patently illegal warfare item that uh, you know has claimed the lives of thousands, maybe millions of people uh, ever since World War One. It seems like in times of war,
1: where you'd have typical ethical issues mm-hmm. that people would, I think, pretty much agree that they wouldn't cross, that in times of war, sometimes that goes out the window.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he never got into chemistry thinking that he was going to create something that would kill um, amazing amount numbers of people but that's where he ended up
1: yeah and that's where i think science and ethics is so extraordinarily important because there always has to be a focus on the ethical development and application of things i think mm-hmm. generally the development is people trying to develop something you know and it's the challenge and wanting to have humanity progress or move forward but then once that happens there are these intense and very real moral quandaries that come about.
0: Yeah. And those moral quandaries are interesting because they led into Fritz Haber's personal life. And the mingling of some of the major events in his personal life and what he's known for professionally and through history are really pretty stunning. He met his first wife, Clara Imohar, in 1889. And her story is pretty amazing. She was the first woman to ever earn a PhD at the University of Breslau, and she was also a chemist. And they were married in 1901, and they had a son in 1902. And history pegs Clara really as a women's rights activist and a pacifist, which in the early 1900s was kind of a unique thing. So when you think about her background and her interest and what he was doing there's a really sharp conflict there. And she actually took her own life in 1915. She shot herself, but she didn't actually die. She was found by her 12-year-old son, and then she died later. She didn't leave a note for her suicide, but we know that she was profoundly unhappy for a number of reasons. But she had a very strong disagreement with her husband over his chemical warfare work. And the results of that, especially after World War I, really got going. And this was something that was really being used extensively.
1: Well, I can see also with Haber,
0: do you happen to know off the top of your head, when did he die? Oh, that's a good question. He actually died, I think he died in the United States, in the 40s, I think. Okay. I'd have to go back and double check.
1: Yeah, because I'm sure for him, developing fertilizer, then helping develop chemical warfare in World War I, and then for his developments to then be used in World War II in concentration camps. Yeah. The sequence of events from a development point of view is like okay I see that why that happened but then as an individual that'd be very hard to live with even though it's just something you did as a scientist and then you did as somebody loyal to your country yeah. to try to figure out how to win win a war and World War 1 is also interesting because this is really general and cheesy <laughs> simplistic I should say there were no good or bad guys in World War 1 right yeah it's not World War 2 where there's ideologies racial supremacy with the Nazis and stuff like that it's very easy to say that was bad in World War One, it was a very large-scale localized war that just killed millions of people.
0: Yeah. The ironies with his personal life continue on, too. And this last part really kind of blows me away. His granddaughter, Claire, was a chemist, and she was living and working in the United States at the time. And she took her life in 1949 because she was working on antidotes for the effects of chlorine gas. That was her research area. And the government decided to no longer fund her work and shifted funding into atomic weapons programs. Mm. And that destroyed her. That loss of her career, basically, really is what inspired her to take her life in 1949. So just tremendous amounts of tragedy associated with Fritz Haber. But on the flip side, you have this amazing thing that he did, for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1918. And we still benefit from that today.
1: Yeah. And I mean, just on a side note, we compost in my family. And so we have about enough material to grow vegetables for our family. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time to compost. Yeah. And just uh, how much kind of time and effort to feed a family of four hours, five. And so I could see how you scale that to a population. And it makes sense that the population didn't really increase until there's more industrialized ways of producing food. Yeah. There's a direct link there. Supporting that. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely,
0: And then if you extend it another level, almost every environmental problem that we have on the globe today can be traced back to population increases. So I'm not saying that we should kind of eliminate one third to half of the world's population, but not Mm. everything is all good. Right. No, no, it's true.
1: It's true. And uh, that brings up another ethical, obviously, you can talk about climate change and different things like that. And uh, (laughs) that is another wonderful podcast. (laughs) Even uh, going super nerdy here, where some people talk about Thanos. In the, the Marvel franchise, and mm-hmm. how some people would support, quote, Thanos, which to me is a really odd ethical or moral outcome for something that is horrible. Right. Yeah. If you logically think of that from a moral perspective, that doesn't make sense. So, and at this time, we're going to go and take a break. Today, we're talking to Dr. Danny Welsh here at The Everyday Scholar. Protecting the public from health challenges such as epidemics requires people with knowledge and skill who are capable of being change agents. At American Public University, you will learn the skills needed to improve today's public health in local communities and around the globe. Take the next step and apply today at study at apu.com. And welcome back to today's Everyday Scholar with Dr. Danny Welsh. And so, Danny, the next question we have is, are there any
0: other interesting
1: inventions
0: that are tied up with warfare? Yeah, Bjorn, there's actually a lot. But one that I think most people will have heard of, or at least most people my age and older, is DDT. So DDT is a pesticide. And DDT was not originally developed for warfare, but its use really became prevalent in World War 2. So it, it was really a organic compound that was first synthesized in 1874. And it was originally developed as an insecticide, but that didn't really take off until about 1939. So there was a Swiss chemist, Paul Muller, and he also won the Nobel Prize, but not in chemistry. He won it in medicine because of the amazing insecticidal properties of this thing that he had created or at least identified. And that was in 1948. So DDT was really used extensively, amazingly extensively, in the second half of World War II largely to control fun things like malaria, dengue, and typhus. So World War II is credited, if you can credit this, to being the first war where disease didn't kill more people than actual injury. World War One, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, more people died from disease, whether that was disease related to an injury or just disease associated with large groups of people living in relatively unsanitary conditions. Disease has always been a big problem with warfare. So DDT was really used extensively in World War II to prevent that. And it was very successful. And then after World War II ended, agricultural use of DDT really, really picked up. So between 1950 and 1980, there were about 40,000 tons of DDT per year just in the United States that were applied. And while that sounds great because nobody loves mosquitoes, there was a lot about this compound that we didn't realize. Once it gets into the environment, it lasts a really, really long time. So it's very persistent and it sticks to soils. Soils have a negative electrochemical charge and this stuff is very positively charged electrochemically. So, you know, opposites attract. So this stuff stuck onto the soil. And it had a half-life on soil of somewhere between 22 and 30 days, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you think about what a half-life really means, if you stand in the middle of a room and walk halfway to the wall, that's one half-life and then walk another halfway to the wall. You're never actually going to get to the wall because you're only ever going halfway. But every 22 to 30 years, you would lose about half of the concentration in the soil. So technically, this stuff is still out there, although the concentrations are small right now. But the other problem is that it bioaccumulates. So as you move up the food chain, things that eat other smaller organisms would accumulate this stuff. And this was really most prevalent in birds and raptors you know that is really what caused the downfall of DDT i suppose was this uh, what they called thinning shell syndrome because it would bioaccumulate primarily in raptors, like our national bird, the bald eagle, the shells of the eggs would be very, very thin. And that's just one of the uh, biological impacts of this stuff. And the eggs would crack under the weight of the mother bird. So the populations of raptors were significantly impacted by this. And it took a while to figure that out. In 1957, there was an unsuccessful attempt to limit DDT that originated in Nassau County, New York. And it was championed by someone who's familiar to anyone who has done any reading about the history of the environmental movement, Rachel Carson. So Rachel Carson wrote a piece for the New Yorker about this time, which eventually became her seminal book, Silent Spring, which was released in 1962, arguing against pesticides. And this was really the start of the U.S. environmental movement, which has taken off. The Environmental Defense Fund, which is still to this day one of the largest environmental advocacy organizations in the country, was started at the same time with the singular goal of banning DDT because of its impact on both environmental health and human health. It's an endocrine disruptor and maybe a carcinogen. So in 1972, DDT was pretty much outright banned. But because it is so effective at what it does, there were still occasional public health-related uses under special permits until 1979 or so. And just as an aside, when I was in grad school, I used to do a lot of kayaking. And there was this farm in Buena Vista, Virginia, that we would go to sometimes to put boats in. And there was a really old barn on this farm. And in this barn were these metal cans of DDT. So the stuff is still out there, and uh, who knows how stable that was in those cans, but it wasn't really all that long ago that this stuff was used pretty extensively. You could buy it for your house and just sprinkle it for bedbugs. It was not something that was difficult to get at. It was a regular consumer product, but it had its origins in warfare. And just like DDT revolutionized warfare in World War II, DEET, which is another, not really an insecticide, but a bug repellent, was developed by the military for the use primarily in the Vietnam War. So the military societal back and forth is very strong. Mm -hmm. Today, luckily, there's a lot of
1: testing of products before they're released.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because obviously if you test something it's wonderful and you just put it out there, the negative possible or downstream effects can be horrible.
0: Yeah. There is a tremendous amount of testing on products today for safety and for effectiveness and a number of things. But I think it's the unintended consequences of some of these products that are the scariest. When DDT was first developed, no one had any idea that it was going to cause thinning of eggshells in in higher order raptors, but it did. So no one really thought to test for that. So some of these things are so, there's some chemical properties of some of these compounds that we don't completely understand or that make them so insidious that the impacts that these things have are really difficult to grasp and predict. Mm-hmm. That totally makes sense because something is invented. I mean, just like we were
1: talking today, something is invented, and then years down the road, it's later used for something completely different. Yeah. And everything we talked about, there's so much history. Where if we read the history of World War One, World War Two, you jump into Vietnam and just regular world history, there's so many ways in which we can learn from history to try to not yeah. repeat certain mistakes and just the ethical issues. Just there's so many ethical issues. And just thinking of, you know, firearms, mm-hmm. how firearms were originally created, gosh, hundreds of years ago in Europe with a very simple firearm that took like, you know, I don't know, a few minutes to load. (laughs) Uh, What were they called? The arabesques or something like that? I'm not sure. Yeah, but just very clunky. And then you move forward to more efficient, more efficient to today, where there's many, many ethical issues with firearms. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, here's a question for you, which really relates to say DDT. And so the environmental movement as a scientist, why do you feel that there is some pushback towards, I would say Thinking of science and climate and how humans impact the world. Mm -hmm. And not to get overly political, but what is it about that topic that gets people hesitant or
0: not wanting to look at the science? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the immediacy of the impacts. So if we think about an example, if someone said, it's really bad for you to drop a match on the carpet in your living room people would look at that and go, yeah, you're right. That would be really bad. Because the impact would be immediate. You would see that something would catch on fire in your house. But if someone says, you know, it's really bad to burn coal because you're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and you're raising the global temperature, that's a, a, a much more distant impact. And it's also not necessarily a personalized impact. Let's say you have a coal furnace. My neighbors have coal furnaces, honestly, because I live in a coal mining region. My neighbor's burning coal, probably not having a measurable impact on the global climate, my individual neighbor. Right. But if you take that collectively, and if you look at the amount of coal that's burned and the amount of carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere, it's huge. But that's a very difficult thing for people to comprehend because it's pretty easy to say, and, and that's the, the default notion, is I'm just one person. Right? How much of an impact can I have? And I also think, to quote Al Gore's book, it's an inconvenient truth. Hmm. People don't necessarily want to think about having to change their lifestyle, especially when... The problems are so big and so vast and honestly so challenging that it's easy to say, I'm just one person and my impact is small, so I'm not going to change. And that totally
1: makes sense. I mean, even when my wife started doing a backyard gardening, it's something that we could do where we're trying to do 100% organic, mm-hmm. pesticide free. And it it's challenging because here in Arizona, the dirt has nothing in it. Sure. <laughs> it is right, yeah. literally dirt. So there's a you, know, you have to add a lot of nutrients to it. And it takes a lot of work where it's much easier just to go to your local grocery store and just buy some zucchinis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it is something that, you know, on an individual level, I'm hoping that, and I do see that people are becoming much more aware of things. And yeah, it is still a challenge to say, what can I do? But there's so many little things that everybody can do. And so, is there anything you can think of that individuals in their houses here in America, we're very blessed to live in this country, I would say with safety and accessibility to anything. Sure. What could individuals do to help just their environmental
0: impact? Well, it really depends a lot on where you are and what resources you have available to you. So one of the things that is really increasing in the area that I live is solar power. If you think about what's actually contributing to climate change, it's largely the combustion of fossil fuels for the generation of electricity. So to the extent that we can supplement that with renewable resources, I think that's fantastic, but to do that on an industrial scale is actually really difficult. But to do that on an individual homeowner scale is actually pretty easy. And I don't live in a particularly sunny place. I'm in the mountains of Western Maryland, and it's cloudy here a lot, and our sun angle is fairly low in the winter. But there's still a lot that you can do. I'm putting a new roof on my house in the spring, and the second thing I'm going to do after the new roof goes on is solar panels are going up, because we don't use a ton of electricity in our house. But what we do use can be generated locally and cleanly, and then the excess can be sold back to the utility, and someone else can benefit from that as well. But of course, you have to live in a relatively sunny place in order to do that, although you might be surprised how much of an impact you can have, even if you don't live in Arizona or New Mexico or the Sun Belt. But there's also a cost to doing that. Over the long term, the cost is low, but over the short term, the initial startup costs can be relatively high. So it might not be an option for everyone, but the rate at which we use energy is probably the biggest thing. So anything that you can do to reduce energy consumption, or at least energy that is derived from fossil fuel combustion, will have a big impact. And that is
1: wonderful. Living in the Sun Belt, there's quite a few houses around us that have solar energy. And like you said, the short-term cost is very high. With long term cost is beneficial. And it's one thing, and I don't know if you've been to the Sun Belt, but as you drive from Phoenix to LA, you pass a bunch of solar farms. Mm-hmm. And so they are popping up. And so besides solar farms, there's a bunch of wind farms too, especially when you get into California.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We have a tremendous amount of wind generation here. Almost every ridgetop around my house is now covered in wind turbines. For better or worse, I'm actually not a huge fan of ridgetop wind because of the disruption to migratory patterns for birds and, and other wildlife offshore wind I think makes a lot more sense and people will often point the finger at me and say oh but you don't live offshore but I do actually I grew up right on the coast of Maryland literally on the atlantic ocean and my parents still live there so I'm not quite a nimby person when I talk about offshore wind but uh yeah so there are a lot of things that are popping up everywhere and even on the eastern shore of maryland when I drive over to visit my parents there are a number of solar farms that are popping up over there as well which I think is really exciting to see
1: yeah and All of these are different ways to, again, to help out in in just small ways. Mm -hmm. So I would like to thank you, uh, Danny, for a great conversation today. And any final
0: thoughts? No, I just, I'm always been fascinated by the intersection between science, technology, and history. And I think that we talked about a, a number of really fascinating things today that hit that right on the mark. Excellent. And so thank you. Um, so Dr. Danny Welsh, uh, Associate
1: Dean uh, for STEM here at American Public University. And again, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer for The Everyday Scholar, and have a good day.
0: For more information about our university, visit us at study.apu.com. At APU, American Public University.